Uh, as a church, I'm going to invite you this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> and we're, we're not going to be specific in our message today related to Mother's Day. However, you're going to find a lot of application uh, if, if you are a mother. And not just in that category, but uh, really any walk of life. This will be helpful as we deal with uh, relationship today. In looking at this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, I'm just going to ask, this is, this is a well-known uh, question, and so this, well, I'll leave this rhetorical for you, uh, but, but something to think about here uh, as we dive into this text. Do you know the number one reason Christian missionaries leave the mission field? What is the number one reason Christian missionaries leave the mission field? Out of all the things you may, might conjure up or ideas that, to consider, the, the sad reality is the number one reason that's been attributed to really through, through many years, you can just Google this if you don't believe me, you'll see all kinds of articles pop up, it's interpersonal conflict. They can't get along with the other missionaries they work with. And they end up leaving the mission field. And it's a tragedy to, to think about because when you consider what God wants, what God does in his people, and then what God desires to do through his people, it is a beautiful work. And when Christians within their own tribe can't even get along to what God calls us to, it is it's a very tragic narrative that, that is written. And 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that is exactly what Paul deals with here, is interpersonal conflict. And you probably could have determined what the answer would have been to that question if you looked to the, uh, to the headline, to the to the. Uh, the sermon notes if you pick those up when you came in today, but, but Paul's giving us some thoughts as it relates to how to navigate through conflict when we experience it, especially among God's own people or in your, your close relationships in life. And that is how Paul approaches this text today. Four thoughts when navigating through, through conflict. And I'm just going to jump right into it. First, first number one in, in your notes there is to, to be mindful of the destruction conflict can cause to the work of the gospel. Be mindful of the destruction conflict can, can cause to the work of, of the gospel. Uh, and Paul starts off in verse four, chapter two, just, just giving us the, the thought that way. But, but before we dive into verse four, I want us to see how Paul, he, right in the middle of what he's sharing in this chapter, he says in verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. As Paul, through this section of verse 4 to verse 17, he's talking about conflict, he wants us to, to realize just kind of a, a sobering reality that in our interaction in life, there's always something spiritual that's taken place. Sometimes people can get obsessive about spiritual warfare, but, but everything we do in life has some sort of spiritual implication related to it, right? And Paul's saying, especially when we deal with relationship and it gets to the point of conflict, it doesn't have to be a place where Satan gets victory in our lives. Like God can use our conflict, and we're not, as believers, not to avoid conflict, but, but God can use that as a way in his life to show the beauty of the gospel, not to create the division among his people. But when it gets to that place where it, it, it becomes counterproductive in our relationships, it therefore becomes uh, counterproductive in what God wants uh, to do through us in this world as his community, and it's exactly what Satan wants to leverage among God's people. 
And it's important for us to be mindful of that because sometimes when we get offended or we get hurt, we get all up in our emotion and all we can think about is ourselves, and we start to see red and we say things like, catch me outside, right? It's like, <laughs> meet me out back if you're from the 80s and catch me outside if you're from, the, if you're from recent years, right? That's how we phrase it. And, and we get stuck in that emotion and we stop thinking about beyond us and the, the consequences of that. And we live within our, ourselves and how we can provide retribution to the moment. And, and Paul, taking a step back from the conflict he's experiencing with the church of Corinth, begins to recognize, and when we walk in that, when we walk in that, Satan gets victory. And so when we get to that place of that emotional turmoil and the frustration of relationship, to be mindful, be mindful of the destruction conflict can cause to the work of the gospel. It's not to say that we shouldn't walk in conflict or step into a, a difficult situation as believers. We're not talking about avoidance here. But to realize the repercussions as we journey down that path and we're on a in precarious moments in, in places of adversity. In fact, in, in verse four, he says it like this. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of my heart and with many tears. Paul, super apostle here, right? Or, or, or an apostle. We're going to talk about super apostles in this book. So I should not equate that with Paul. But Paul as an apostle of the Lord. If you think anyone's got grit, it's definitely Paul. I mean, in the book of Corinthians, he talks about all the things that he endured for the sake of the gospel, being shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and not even knowing if he's going to survive. He tells us in chapter one of this book, like, Paul's gone through a, a lot, not even be able to eat, not, no, no clothing, no shelter. I mean, he has faced all the struggles. This, this is a tough dude. But then he says in the reality of his interaction with God's people in that struggle, his heart gets to that place of affliction and anguish and, and tears. Right? Adversity affects all of us, especially when it's relational. That cuts the deepest. Uh, and I would say probably the, the wounds that cut the most deepest, can I even say that? The most deepest, that's not even grammatically correct. It, it's, it's when people are closest to you. They, their wounds hurt the worst. And Paul wants the church just to, to be aware of this, but he, he's identifying the, the struggle of conflict. And, and then he goes on in verse five and he's saying, but, but even, even as it affects me, here's, here's what's also important. He says, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul in this moment, he's, he's still selfless. He still wants the church to realize through, through all the hardship that he's facing, his, his thoughts are to let go of himself and consider the well-being of everyone else involved. This affects me, but as it affects me, my heart is still about you. What does God desire to, to, to want to do through you and, and work through you? And so... Conflict doesn't have to be this black eye, but it can be a powerful way that the beauty of the gospel works through all of us. And I think out of anywhere, out of anywhere, we can see the beauty of conflict resolve. It's got to be among God's people because we have the hope of the gospel, the forgiveness of Christ being lived through our lives. And so if anyone should know how to walk through this moment, it's got to be, it's got to be God's people. 
Because we've experienced the grace of Christ in our own lives and having our, our soul forgiven in Jesus. And, and, and through that, the reconciliation of a relationship to Christ as Christ has given himself completely for us while we were enemies of him, it tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And, and so Paul, I think he, he and though he, he recognizes what conflict can produce, he's, he's still boldly engaging this, this moment because he knows the hope of what the gospel presents and the beauty it can demonstrate before the world, the hope that we have because of Christ in the midst of of that kind of adversity, that we walk different than the world walks in those moments. Which is why he goes on in verse five, he says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to to all of you. And Paul's saying, look, as as a church, we we don't run away from conflict. That's not what what, what God has called us to. But we need to begin to to realize that when when one person within the body of Christ starts to hurt, it it affects all of us. We may not recognize fully how it completely would affect us. But when someone goes to this this part that Paul's referring to in in affliction and deep anguish, that they're in tears, in that moment it might sideline them from from exercising the gifts that God has given them to bless the body of Christ. And so in doing, when one is affected, all of us can feel the repercussions of that. So Paul is saying for us, it's it's not about avoiding it and, and he's he's also certainly beginning to recognize look and we don't need to be obsessive about this we don't need to say um, now because conflict can affect all of us in some way that we all just need to start obsessively looking for conflict and go out and just start killing it like there 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 are places in life where we can tolerate the tension in relationship because we're not all the same Matter of fact, living in the Christian community, being a believer now, I think longer than being an unbeliever, I have just found that there's a lot of quirky personalities in the body of Christ. And that's a nice way of saying, look, all of you are weird. Like, yeah, there's, there, there, all of us have something about us that just make us uh, some, some aspect that only a mother can love, okay? And, um, and we need to be able to give grace to one another in that. We're not trying to make clones of our preferences, but we're trying to see in the life of each other what is it Jesus desires for the benefit of the body to his glory and the blessing of the world, the relationships around us. What does Jesus want to do in us and through us? And so Paul, he's saying, look, there's this way it affects all of us. But point number two, we need to approach conflict with a godly heart. And this is where he says in verse six, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So Paul in this moment, he's, he's, he's thinking about a specific issue, right? And this, this person that's a part of the body here, part of the church in Corinth, uh, that, that he, most likely he's had some sort of repentant heart. And he's saying to the church there, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So the church has responded to what's happening with, within the body of Christ here towards this individual. And so Paul in this moment, he's, he's acknowledging a few things by this verse. One, he's saying, look, you don't sweep it under the rug. When, when Christians talk about conflict, we don't just sweep it under the rug. When, when there's active sin within the body of Christ, you don't just ignore it and move away from it and turn a blind eye and act like it's not there. We don't, we don't just pretend. Right? That's not what Christian community is about. But, but at the same time, when he's talking about this punishment by the majority is enough, he's saying also, also we're not bulldozers. We're not pushovers and we're not bulldozers. We don't come in steamrolling people. That's, that's not what we're about. But rather, rather the beauty of being a follower of Jesus is God gives us a place to be open with our failures. 
Like some people in this world, they walk around with their sin, they don't know what to do with it, right? They try to cover it up, they try to eventually perform enough good works that they can tolerate the bad things they've done in life, right? They try to make excuses, try to, try to just move away from the, the, the negative things and shine a spotlight on all the great things they do to say, look, doesn't this make me lovable enough? That's, that's the way the world tends to deal with these things. But as, as believers, we've learned in Jesus, we don't, we don't have to do that. And we can bring it straight to Christ. You see, in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't know what to do with their sin. They ran and hid from God. They covered up themselves with fig leaves and tried to pretend like there was nothing wrong. But Jesus is the one that pursued them. Jesus has demonstrated to us that in him we have a place to take our sin. When we screw up, we, we can be honest with that because we're not trying to impress people with who we are. We're trying to make our lives impressed by who Jesus is because he's the one that transforms us. And so we can screw up. We can just say, look, I, I, can, I can acknowledge this because I'm not trying to put this image of perfection before you in, in my identity. But rather we can take it to Christ and be honest with it and find healing and forgiveness and restoration in relationship. But, but Paul, when he's describing this in this verse, he uses this very interesting word. He says, and I highlighted it here for us, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. This punishment. Could you imagine? You come to church on Sunday and I want to teach you, hey guys. Great topic today. We're going to talk about conflict. We're going to talk about church discipline. And I want you all to learn how to punish someone else. <laughs> that, is a, that is a strange word to be using in a passage like this. And when Paul uses this word punishment, what makes it very um, interesting is that this is the only time in, in the New Testament that this Greek word punishment is used. There are other Greek words that we translate in English as punishment, but this particular Greek word, this is the only time it's used in all of the New Testament. And when we understand this word, we have a better understanding of what Paul is saying, because I will often tell you, even as, as parents, when, you, when you're raising children, that your goal as a parent is not to punish your kids. When they do something wrong, it's not to punish their kid, your kids. What you should be interested in as a parent rather than punishment is discipline. Because what you're interested in in your child is the type of person they're becoming, the, the character that they will ultimately display. As a, as a parent, you're thinking about the end goal of your child, and you want to nurture that heart through proper discipline. And discipline doesn't always have to be bad, but you want to see them develop in, in, into great human beings, hopefully godly human beings surrendered to the Lord. But you want to see them bless the world rather than tear the world apart. And so rather than punishment, we think about discipline. And, and when I say that now, we got to deal with the fact that Paul is talking about punishment in the body of Christ. Um, if you look up, if you do a word search in the New Testament for the word punishment, you'll find in the New Testament that when, when the Bible uses the word punishment, it usually is dealing with the government punishing someone as a wrongdoer. It's used in terms of Jesus and the Gospels. Um, it, it's also used in terms of an unbeliever facing the judgment seat of Christ. But it is not used in terms of a New Testament Christian. So why does Paul use it here? Well, this particular word that Paul is using is in connection to citizenship in Rome. He's talking about, he's using, borrowing a word that is used for citizens in Rome when they come before officials because of something wrong they've done. Now, what makes that unique in understanding is that not everyone that lived in Rome that was a part of Rome was a citizen of Rome. In fact, it was considered a very prestigious uh, title to be termed a citizen in Rome. 
And so this was unique, but there was, there was certain privileges granted to Roman citizens when they were uh, faced with, with charges that wasn't given to everyone else that lived within Rome. They, they, were, they received this preferential treatment. And they got due process in the law that wasn't always granted to un- uh, non-citizens. And so there was this particular way that when a citizen came before local authorities for some kind of uh, uh, charge brought against them that they were treated, right? And so what Paul is saying in this text is, look, he is one of us. This person is one of us, and we need to meet them where they are according to what they've done. We're not about overpowering them. We're not about destroying them. We're not about getting the upper hand. That's not what the community of Christ is about, this domination over others. But we're about meeting them where they are. And the hope is that they awaken to what they're doing. That they're mindful of the repercussions of which they are bringing. In fact, if you study in scripture how the Bible calls us to approach one another when you know a brother or sister in Christ is just actively walking contrary to Jesus. It's a very humble approach. It's not about lording over people. It's not about smacking them in the face and telling them to wake up. And Peter says, unless you too would also be tempted to sin, approach, approach humbly, graciously. Um, probably one of the best passages on it is uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17. It describes it like this. When you know a brother or sister in Christ is struggling in that way, but you come to them humbly. And it's verse 15. Then in verse 16, if they didn't listen, go grab another believer in Christ and meet them where they're at and, and just speak into their lives. And if that doesn't work, get the body of Christ. What we do here is so sacred. And we're talking about life forever in Jesus and what God wants to do in you and through you is far more important than anything that can uh, be tempted by this, this world, this other path for you to follow. And, and so Paul is just wanting us to recognize this, like the body of Christ in this moment got involved. And one of the things I love about this passage is Paul never tells us what the problem is. Do you notice that? Some people speculate as to what it could be. Some people think in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 that there's this passage where Paul's dealing with sexual sin in the church among a, a believer. And, and perhaps it's that. Perhaps that's what Paul's addressing here. He's saying that this person, that we've handled it. And so we need to, we need to walk different in how we, we treat this person. We're not here just to, uh, just to beat people up. Or we're not trying to dominate. It's not even our purpose. And some people speculate that's what it could be. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's what they're dealing with in this passage. I, th- I think what they're dealing with in this passage is someone who's become uh, vindictive towards the Apostle Paul. I think this has been a personal attack on Paul. That's why Paul talks about his own anguish and his own struggle in this passage. And the body of Christ has just stood up and said, the way you're treating Paul, is, it's not right. It's, it's not helpful. It's not godly. It's not good. And so we think about what we desire as a church, our goal is different than the world's goal. The world's goal has this cancel culture mentality, right? 
You see somebody do something wrong, and especially against you, the way the world teaches it, is now you have a platform to shame them, to promote yourself, to make you look better than them. Right? I think that's probably the general definition of cancel culture. If it's not, just take my definition. It's the right one, right? But that's the way we treat people, that, that if someone does anything wrong in this world, then that gives me the platform to act just as nasty back, because, but I'm the righteous one here because I'm the one that's been wrong. So it doesn't matter how, how venomous I get in response. I get to leverage where I'm at now because they They've done wrong to make me look good because they're awful. Let's shame them, everybody. Jump on board. That's not, that's not Jesus' heart at all. Jesus' heart is still for lives to be turned to him. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage, that we're not, we're not here to become legalists. We're not here to conform people to our preferences. We just want to see people walk with Jesus. And help people see the need for what Christ can do in their lives. I love when, when Martin Luther, I think I've, I've brought this quote up before, but when Martin Luther, this is a beautiful picture of Martin Luther, right? I don't know where he gets his hair done, did, and I got, but I got to, but, but Martin Luther, when, when uh, he was brought before religious leaders of his day, and he was accused of wrongdoing, this is, all, this is what he simply said, and this is important for all of us. He says, unless I'm convinced by scripture in plain reason, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to do, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. What's the Lord say? And where can my heart align with with Christ? Number three, then Paul says this, verse seven and eight. He says, reconcile with a repentant heart. Reconcile with a repentant heart. This is where Paul gets to in this passage. He's saying, look, what you've done as a body in, in order to meet this brother or sister in Christ where they are, it's, it's sufficient. You've pursued the heart. And so he goes on, he says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul, in this passage, he gives us three ways to respond. You know, as a church, the Bible certainly says to us, um, our hearts should always be open to forgive. We should always extend that hand uh, of forgiveness to people. Jesus was asked, huh, how many times should we forgive? And he says, 70 times seven, which is, which is a way of saying no one can ch- keep track of that number. Just forgive as long as you're able to forgive. Carry that heart. It's reflective of who Jesus is to you. But we don't experience full forgiveness until reconciliation takes place. You can always extend that heart to forgive, be willing to forgive, but the full embracing of forgiveness doesn't happen until re- reconciliation takes place. But we as God's people should always be willing to extend that hand of, of forgiveness. Uh, Corey Ten Boom said it like this, and she, Corey Ten Boom, if you don't know about her, her she was uh, taken into a concentration camp, her and her sister, they helped lead uh, uh, part of uh, setting Jewish people free during Nazi Germany. She, she and her sister were eventually caught, put in a concentration camp. She watched her sister tortured and, and died there. And then she went on to minister to the soldiers that were responsible for what Nazi Germany became. She helped them in their own personal recovery because of what they had gone through. But she says this, she said, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to find out the prisoner was really me. Uh, that's what a lack of forgiveness has the tendency to do within our lives, right? We, we feel like it becomes our responsibility to carry the vengeance. And she, she began to realize that it really, it destroys you more than anyone else. 
Now, when we think in terms of forgiving what God desires for us, forgiveness is not forgetting. I think that's important to know. Forgiveness is, is not forgetting. In fact, forgetting can be one of the most destructive things that you could do. Now, if you know someone in your life that you forgive, but they struggle in an area, and you, in forgetting it, set them up to repeat the same pattern, that's not helpful for anybody. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. I I know when the scripture tells us that when we sin, Jesus separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. And that's true, he does, judicially. Judicially speaking, what I mean is he doesn't hold that against you anymore. Like if you see your life before the, the court of law and God as judge and jury, when God thinks about your sin, if it's been forgiven for him, he separates as far as the east is from the west. But God's also all knowing. And all-knowing means he doesn't really forget anything. He, remember, he remembers and knows all things, but he doesn't hold it to your account. That's, that's the idea of what forgiveness represents. And forgiveness is not avoiding. It's not avoiding the problem. In fact, I think because of Jesus, it gives you a place to talk about it, confront it, meet it where it's at. To not be a pushover, but at the same time not be a, a bulldozer and steamroll. Forgiveness is really no longer taking the responsibility to hold something over someone. You deal with it so you can move on. Because God cares too much about you to let you become trapped in a heart of bitterness. God is big enough to handle it. Which is why we're able to deal with it and then turn it over to the Lord. And so Paul says, forgive. And then he also says, comfort. And we've talked about this idea of comfort. Comfort isn't coddle. Comfort is to, 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 really, it is to nurture. It carries the idea of nurturing where someone is, but at the same time, strengthening them. And it's to say, God still wants to do a work in them. I don't want to make them a prisoner to their past if we've been reconciled in relationship, but they need freedom to run and to live as God has called them to live. And then he says to reaffirm your love with him. And this, this doesn't mean become best friends. Just because you had a struggle with somebody doesn't mean if you want to forgive them that you, you got to become besties, you know, in that moment. But, but, but you do need to reaffirm a, a, a love towards them that, that gives them the opportunity to continue on in what God's called them to. To be the body of Christ. To do as God has created his, his church to do. And then Paul goes on from there and he says this in verse 9 and 10. He says, for this is why I wrote that I must test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. I love this. Paul's saying, and I know what I'm saying is not easy. But, but it's a good way to see where your own maturity is in the Lord because, because the very thing that we struggle to do in our own personal relationships, Jesus has done for you. And to not carry this attitude of, of grace into this world becomes hypocritical to your own faith. And, but the reality is we all struggle because we're all people and it, becomes, it can become personal. And when it becomes personal, we get all emotional and we get very focused on us. We think internally and we say things like, catch me outside, right? And, and we got to work through that. And so Paul's saying, look, there's a place of maturity in the life of the believer as you learn to process this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I love it. He, he gave us this quote. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> And then it's a whole different story. But Paul is saying that, look, this becomes a place for you to to measure where your growth is in the Lord. To see the kind of heart you're carrying in this world. Because relationships aren't always easy. But then he goes on in an encouraging way and says in verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. It's about what Jesus wants to do in all of us. 
And when he, he's saying this in, in verse 10, he's saying, look, we're in this together. We're going to do this together. This is difficult. This isn't easy. But God is maturing us through this and, and what he ultimately wants to do. And let's not, let's not let Satan leverage this in verse 11. But man, let's fix our eyes on the greater work that God wants to cause uh, in, in all of us. And so on that journey, we get to see where our maturity is. And we are in this together. And so in number, point number four in your notes, stay humble. Stay humble by remembering who you are apart from Christ. Now Paul, he's going to start sharing a little bit more about that humility in verse 14, but I want you to see this in verse 12. He just reminds us again of the effects uh, that conflict has in, in the body of Christ. He says this, when, when I came to Tross to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. And here's what Paul's saying. In Corinth, there were a lot of people at one point that hated Paul. They rejected Paul. And Paul had to deal with that. And he didn't run from it. He visited them and, and he, he found them malicious and then he left. And so then he wrote a letter and he sent Titus to check on the church. And then Paul was waiting in Troas for Titus to return from that, to let him know how the church is doing. And, and he's saying to us in the story, as he's in this town of Charles, he can't even focus on what God can do in him and through him in this town because he is bearing the weight of knowing how Corinth might feel towards him. And he just wants to hear it. And, and the story goes, or the thought is that at the end of the, end of the year, when the last ships were coming in, to the area where Titus or where, where Paul was in Troas, that Titus wasn't there. And so rather than wait through the winter until the spring when Titus might return again from Corinth, Paul just jumped on a boat and got out of, got out of Dodge. He's like, I gotta move on. I gotta get to Macedonia, clear my head and keep doing ministry. And so Paul is bearing that weight and had an effect even how he's trying to reach a town that's not even in Corinth. But then he says this, he gives us this thought of humility, he brings this back to his, his own struggle and how he's had to walk through this. And then he gives us this thought, he says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul says something interesting in, in verse 14. He's, he's painting a picture here. And I want you to know, I'm reading from the ESV this morning, ESV translation. I actually disagree with the ESV and how they chose to translate this from Greek with that word leads. I'll talk about it in a minute. But here's, here's a picture Paul's painting. When a Roman general would go into battle and he was victorious and he would come back to Rome, there would be a parade, a big parade. Uh, people would even build uh, platforms to stand on to see this parade because it was, it was a, a grand time to celebrate that Rome was victorious. And when, when the general would return into the streets to, to lead the parade, he would be in the front being pulled by an elaborate chariot. Sometimes that chariot would be led by elephants rather than horses. I mean, this was to get your attention. And then behind him would be the soldiers that were victorious in battle. And behind the soldiers then would, would become those that were prisoners of war, those that were captured in battle. And then behind that would come the priests. And the priests would be waving incense in the air. And, and the reason was is that if the streets were too packed and you could not see the parade, the thought was at least as the priests were waving the fragrances, at least you could smell the smell of victory. 
And there was this place of celebration that would go through the streets. And at the end of the parade, sometimes what was practiced was they would take the prisoners and either they would become slaves or they would be slaughtered right then and there. And that's the picture Paul paints here in verse 14 of his position. But what's interesting, and I think one of the reasons translators have such a difficult time with this, that when you think about that kind of parade, Paul is not describing himself in the parade as the general. Paul's not even describing himself in this parade as one of the soldiers representing the general. Paul, rather, in this passage, is describing himself and what it looks like in this verse as one of the captives who have been conquered by the general. And so when translators come to this section of scripture and they realize Paul's describing himself as a prisoner, they don't know what to do with it. Um, this word leads is threeambuo uh, three um, uh, in, in Greek, and it and it, it can carry the idea of simply leading unless it follows a direct personal object, which in this sentence does. And when it follows a direct personal object, the way the word translates is as a captive being led. And so if you go with the, the, the traditional way of, of translating this sentence, what Paul is saying about himself is not that he's simply being led, but that he is a captive being led. And now you've got to deal with that. Why in the world would Paul be calling himself a captive that's being led? And I think it's because through this struggle relationally, Paul is coming to this place of humility of recognizing his own heart before the Lord so that he responds properly to others who are enemies of Christ or living as enemies of Christ by their poor behavior. And I think Paul in this moment, he's realizing who he was apart from Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says of himself that he was the persecutor of God's people. He was the enemy of Christ. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he was the chief of sinners. That's how Paul sees himself. But he realizes as he battled against the Lord, God was victorious over his heart. And God brought him in. And God called him his own. And he now sees himself as a slave of that king, which is a far greater king to serve. And in that, Paul comes to this place of humility because he realizes we all struggle. And he, more than anyone, was the great enemy of Christ. But Jesus conquered him. And he is a good king. And that same heart that fought for Paul is that same heart he wants to demonstrate towards others even though they may fight against him because he realizes who he was against Jesus and he wants that same transformation even of his enemies for the cause of Christ. When we think about staying humble, it's this reminder in, in our own hearts of who we are apart from Jesus which gives us grace to respond to anyone that we interact in in this world, even when they oppose us because of who we are apart from Christ. And Paul goes on and he says it like this, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God and the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 
Paul's saying, look, we're going in this world just sharing this aroma and not everybody's going to embrace it. Some people are going to smell that victory and only think of death because they represent the people of death. But other people are going to smell that and think about the goodness of Christ. And it's not our job on how the chips fall. But, but it's us who are called into this world to, to lift up that fragrance of the goodness of this king that they can find freedom in him. That, that is our role. And so our attitudes, many people may have, verse 17, different approaches on why they're doing what they're doing and they call it uh, as representing Jesus when it's not. But we, we, we want to be people of sincerity, knowing the responsibility we carry because we've been commissioned by God and that we speak in the representation of Christ. That's our goal. Man, even in enemies of the Lord, what is it God can do in you and how can I be a part of communicating that? It's not my job to change your heart, but to demonstrate the goodness of this king that does change hearts, that your heart might have that freedom too. And the way we can carry that posture, even when people might rail against us, is, is to remember we're not fighting for what people think about us. We're living for what people can think about Jesus. The world, to the world, it matters what you think directly about them because to them, the only thing that matters is self. They're gods of their own world. But to believers, it's Jesus because we found our complete identity in him. And to remember who we are before Christ, but now who we are because of Christ, it is incredible. There's a story of, of Hudson Taylor who was speaking in Melbourne, Australia. And it says that the, there was a, someone that came up to introduce Hudson Taylor to the world. And, and they're seeing before this church all these great and grandiose things he's accomplished in China. And went on and on with this list. And finally, when Hudson Taylor got in front of the crowd, he said, Guys, I am but a small servant in the hands of a great master. Hudson Taylor just spoke to the reality of that moment in recognizing his life is only what it is because of the grace of God that's been made known in his heart. Humility is such an important part of the life of the believer. I'll give you one more illustration. There was a, a young lady who, uh, from America, she went to Germany, she wanted to visit, she was a pianist, a great pianist, and she wanted to visit Beethoven's museum. She got to the part of the museum where they had uh, the piano that Beethoven composed some of his greatest works. And she asked the guard, could she play the piano? And the guard said no. And, and she said, okay, if I give you this much money, can I play the piano? And the guard said, yes. And so she got up there and she played the piano and she walked away and she said, yeah, it was great to play, but I bet all of the great pianists in the world play this piano. And the guard said, no, not really. Most of them come to this piano and think they're too unworthy to even touch it. <laughs> Typical American, right? <laughs> Sorry. But that's the point with Jesus. What a gift. What a gift to even have a place to discover who we are and a God of such incredible grace and to have the privilege to live for him and as our life is transformed in him to offer that same opportunity to other people knowing that we all at some point or another are an enemy of Jesus. But it's only by his grace that we find his freedom. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. 
I'm not here to impress people. But I am here that our hearts would be impressed with the greatness of Christ. And it's that grace that gives us a platform to go out in this world and approach the conflict because of the goodness of what Jesus has brought in us, knowing that that same goodness he can deliver to others. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.